Oh, no, that <laughs> don't don't. Oh, it's fine. You know, <laughs> you know what? Let's just start it that way. I played the wrong theme, but you know what? Golf's like that. Here's the right theme. Just let it record. No one's going to care. So trust me. Trust me. No, yeah, we don't edit this thing. Yeah, exactly. No one's going to go, wait a minute. That was not the right beginning. You get a shiver. Good start. Well, that's what happens sometimes, you know, in the game of golf. It's like that. You think, oh, I'm going to, today's going to be a great day. Then you just shank one into the weeds. Uh, welcome to Swing Thoughts. Let's get right to it. Brought to you by TaylorMade Golf, Jonathan Wong, Inc. Uh, this is sort of the... You know, off-season version would you know record every couple of weeks. There's Coach Tim. Look at you, Tim O'Connor. Good to see you. Good to see Always our a guest. Pleasure. We'll yes. Introduce in a moment. Mm. Always a pleasure to be with you, Coach. Uh, of course, I'm a golf spiritual leader. Uh, don't forget to pick up my copy and pick up a copy of my book, Pathways to Par. If you want to know how to, uh, you know. Make more pars. Anyway, speaking of books, uh, this is our, our guest, a frequent contributor to this program. He's written uh, many books uh, under the umbrella of the lost art of golf now. Please welcome back to our program. I'm not sure how many times he's been on, but it's been uh, enough for us to say, hello, friend. It's Carl Morris. Hello, sir. Thanks, Howard. Thanks, Tim. Good to good to be back yet again. I think I've been on this program that many times. I should have sort of associate status or something like that. Uh, absolutely. Part of the, uh, part well, of the we have, yeah, you're certainly friend of show in platinum level. Fos. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's it's good to be good to be back. Good. We always have a good chat. Just before we uh, hit record, um, and just before we start talking about golf, uh, Tim mentioned that you had had some heart trouble. Yeah. Well. Um, I've not had any heart troubles, but uh, very, very long story short, um, from having a series of tests, I've never, never felt fitter and stronger in my life. I was training hard, doing lots of high intensity cardio and weight training and all the stuff that I'd done for years. But I had a, uh, a, a Wellman test, you know, a test for guys over, over 50 years of age. And, and very long story short, one test led to another, led to another, led to another. And I ended up nine months later having a, a quadruple bypass surgery because they found out there's some, uh, the, the, the outside of the car looked okay, but there was a lot of rust going on underneath the bonnet, unfortunately. Really? So it was, yeah, it was a huge shock, huge shock to me. I didn't have any angina symptoms or anything like that, but uh, they pretty much, pretty much said, you know, we, uh, we, need, we need to, uh, we need to get you, get you in and operate. And so I had the operation in, in September and, uh, it's been a it's been a bit a tough stretch. I've, I've I've played a few par fives into wind in the last in the last few weeks. So I I'm, bet. I'm looking forward to the I'm looking forward to the back nine getting a bit easier when I get downwind. You're rocking those metaphors today, Carl. Wow. Yeah, I've just uh, yeah, I've, I've trotted that many of them out. Hopefully, they sound still sound original. <laughs> wow. But you know what I find really amazing is like as you said, there you are, weight training, doing high intensity cardio. You know, your heart's pumping and all that, and yet. Like that, no doubt that was a big surprise. I, I guess maybe that's a, I don't know, a reminder to us all of a certain vintage to get ourselves checked from time to time. What was really interesting, Tim, that I mean, no expert on this at all, but as, uh, I became a pseudo expert, obviously, when I started to look into Doctor Google and all the things around it. But what was interesting was what they told me was that 
a couple of the major art, uh, major arteries had, had kind of almost blocked up completely. There were 96, 98% blockage. But what, what the body had done was built some tributaries around it. They'd kind of like created runoffs that were still feed, feeding the heart. So in, in, in one sense, that, that you know, the, the, the training that I was doing was probably keeping me alive because I was forcing the body into its, you know, it had to adapt and, and create blood flow some way, which when you, when you get your head around that, that, you know, without, without any, any conscious interference on my part, the body would, body was doing whatever the hell it could just to, just to stay alive, which yeah. is, which is pretty amazing. Really. Well, it is amazing when you think about it, your heart was kind of going, well, this guy isn't helping us at all. So we're going to, we're, we're going to have to create some new tributaries. We're going to recruit some, recruit some new troops here. We're going to get a different coaching and uh, going, going a <laughs> That's right. in a different way. So well, what's interesting yeah. about this is that Howard, was it a year or two, two years ago? ago that, yeah. Yeah, I had a little heart trouble, but my 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 heart trouble, Carl, was electrical in nature. Like a, I had electrophysiology ablation, but I didn't have any. So far, I don't seem to have any uh, pump problems. Let me ask you quickly before we get to the lost art of the short game, which is why you're here. Do you have any? Is there any long term? outlook in terms of your efficacy your heart it's all back to normal or do you will you always have to worry about it now i think it's one of those things that you know for something that i've never worried about in my life when, when you find out that this is going on that you didn't know what was going on it's pretty it's pretty hard to to not think about yeah you of know, course as much as this as, as much as the sort of medical people can say oh just get on with things and don't don't worry about it it's it's kind of in in, in the back of your mind but you know, essentially, the surgery went pretty well. There's been a few issues since the surgery that I won't go into all the gory details. There's been some, been some challenges, but what it what it did reinforce to me, you know, was something that we talked about many times on the, on the show and what we talked about in one of the books is, you know, the idea of gratitude and the mm-hmm. idea of appreciation and and, and it, it can sound a trite concept really when you when you're sort of buzzing through life and you always think there's another round to play and you always think there's another opportunity. And then all of a sudden, life goes. Oh, I've got a message for you here. Don't don't assume that you've got another round in you. Don't assume that you've got another season to play. Why don't you Why don't you really be grateful for what you've actually got today and embrace the fact that you've got an opportunity to play today? Well, I sense another and, book and, and coming: and the Lost Art of Gratitude. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, we, we've actually said now that uh, this is it. We're uh, we're not going to do a Rocky. This is this is <laughs> a, there's a trilogy. There's a trilogy. This <laughs> that, is, this is it. Are you saying that the lost art of fighting my, that Russian guy isn't coming up? <laughs> yeah, my, I think I think Sylvester Stallone said after number three there was never going to be any more, didn't he? So, oh yes, he, he, did. Knows, he, know, he knows what might happen. So the lost arts retired at the zenith of its game, kind of the Bobby Jones thing. Well, let's talk yeah, no, about it. If I could just come back just to have for a moment, and maybe we can use this as a bridge into the game. Is that one of the things that we've talked? with you about Carl we've talked about many times on this podcast is the idea of presence of of being in the moment and when you are in a state of gratitude you're in the moment you're not shooting you're not looking saying well things should be another way or if only you're in the moment and that's one of the I think the beautiful things about gratitude is that you can take it to your life to golf to all aspects of of we're right here right now and this is okay 
I think I think one of the biggest mistakes people can make, Tim, with with the concepts around gratitude is is to dismiss it as being kind of a soft approach to the game that, you know, I, I want to win and I want to make birdies and I want to, you know, I want to get on tour and I want to win major championships and all the rest of it. Well, that, that's all, all well and good and, and, and fine to have those intentions. But as we all know, if you're going to play this game well, you need to be present to the puzzle that the golf course is setting you right now in this, in this moment. And that, and that simple concept is actually very hard to do when you're constantly thinking that you'll be happy when. You'll be happy when you win the major. You'll be happy when you get on tour. You'll be happy when you've got enough money, and all and all of these things that you know the old John Lennon line of life. Life's what happens while we're busy making plans. And my goodness, it's 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 so true. But but gratitude is is actually the more I look at it is is actually a foundational position for peak performance. It's a foundational p- position for your actual best expression that you are capable of having on it on a, on a given day. Mm-hmm. But the nice by, but the nice byproduct, the nice byproduct of it is you, you, you're not, you're not a miserable so-and-so <laughs> before you, you know, before you, before you get what you think you want. And yeah. you know, that again, there's so many things I've reflected on, you know, this past few months that are the experiences I've, I've been fortunate to have with, with some players over the years coaching and, you, you know, you you think you're going, you think players are going to be happy when they win big events and they win big tournaments, and you think you're going to be happy as a coach when that happens. But it's very, very easy to to, to miss it in the sense that that the the event happens, the outcome happens, and it's literally like a puff of smoke. It appears and then it disappears very quickly. So you start to ask questions. You know what is what is actually real? What 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 is what is something that's going to last a little bit longer than than these outcomes that I thought was going to make me happy? And it comes back to what you said, Tim, doesn't it? It comes back to what's going on today, and 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 can I be grateful for it? Can I can I appreciate what I actually have today? It doesn't mean to say that you're not aiming to improve. It doesn't mean to say that you're not aiming to shoot low scores. But my goodness, it's a miserable place to be when you're constantly somewhere else in your mind, hoping that a future will make you more contented. Well said, sir. And uh, absolutely. And I'm glad you're healthy. I'm glad you're well. I know it won't be uh, easy, but uh, you know, look at the alternative. You've got to be grateful for the fact that one day, like Norm Macdonald said, if you weren't careful, if you hadn't gone for that test, your heart was going to come up and attack you. And that would have been uh, that would have been the end. Let's talk about uh, well. Let's take gratitude and talk about the short game. Uh, there's been the lost art of putting, lost art of playing golf, and the lost art of the short game. Carl's uh, latest book. Um, just remind me who your co-author co-author is again. I don't have it in front of me. It's uh, a great golf professional. How would he's called Gary Nickel. Gary Nickel. That's right. He co- he, co- he coaches uh, in, a, in a fantastic location, one of the most beautiful locations on earth that I've ever been to, a place called Archerfield in, uh, in, in Scotland, in East Lothian, right in between Muirfield and, and North Berwick. Wow. Um, it's, Gullen is, is right by there. It's a, it's a real heaven on earth place. I always remind, I always say to Gary, you know, you need to remind yourself every day when you, when you turn into the drive, how, how lucky you are. Cause he's, you know, he's, he's often said it's, it's, it's easy to, it's easy to take paradise for granted if you go there every day. No, no kidding. You know, it's funny you say that I was, I just spent 10 days in Venice about uh, a month ago and every day I got up and I would look across the canal at the city and I'd think, 
these people actually get to live here. They get to see this every day because I would just stand there staring at it. Um, let's talk about gratitude in the short game and why is it? Um, let's leave gratitude just for a second. There, I've had this notion, and I, I see it in a lot of people that I, I watch. As we get closer to the green, a couple things happen. Our tension level increases, I think, because our expectations erroneously increase. Because we're close to the hole, we think we should be able to hit everything close to the hole. What do you think about that as a concept for something that impedes most people's short game ability? I think what you're talking about there, Howard, is the is the specter of expectation, isn't yes. it? That as we as we get closer to the green, we we think you, you, you've used the word should, you know, and I, and I think the the word should should be taken out of every golfer's vocabulary because there's no such thing as should. You know, I mean, my goodness, you you look at it on the on the PGA tour. What is it? Once you get out to about eight feet. Even the best players in the world, I think, only make about 50% of putts, don't they? Something eight yeah. to 10 feet, something like that. That's the best players on earth yes. on the best greens on earth. Yeah. And they, only, they only make 50% of those putts. So you look at the expectations that many golfers have, and they're so, so unrealistic. You know, and, and a lot of it is fueled by what we see on TV, that we, we, we watch golf on TV. And again, we're watching the best players in the world having their best weeks and the shots that we see are a selected a selected version of the play that day so you know a great believer in, in in when when you can look at your expectations and sort of widen it a little bit and become a little bit more realistic about it it's not being negative it's actually just getting on with the job at hand you know it was, it was interesting you know I was talking with a guy the other day and he, he was saying that his golf had really improved this year because he had a mindset a little bit more around instead of believing that he had to make loads of birdies he, he was a little bit more of, of the mindset of, of just reducing reducing gross errors so he said you know with a chip shot he, he, he was actually prepared to say to himself you know if he got it on the green and somewhere in the, within a reasonable uh, distance away from the flag that was functional that was okay he didn't beat himself up quite so much but he said the paradox was that when he widened the expectation tunnel and he, and he, and he, and he stopped the perfectionism he actually hit a lot more shots close to the close to the flag because he wasn't putting himself under so much pressure you know you mentioned you, we, we feel the pressure and we feel the tension as we get closer to the green why is that the only reason why we do that is because the perception of the task changes. We perceive that the task should be executed to very, very fine margins. When the reality of it is that, you know, even the best players in the world don't do that. So giving yourself a bit of a break as you get closer to the to the greens has this paradoxical effect of, you know, perception of difficulty changes and the freedom emerges as a result of that. One of the things that I find that comes up again around expectation is perception, you know, how we perceive what we're supposed to do. And one of the things that I love about your lost art series is that word art, you know, instead of here's a way to do it. Mm. And, and we get so much of that in, in golf culture, you know, particularly now through social media, YouTube, all these ways on how to do it. And golfers perceive this is what I must do. Mechanically, I need to swing this way and look this way. And I think that one of the things that what your series of books, and particularly this one as pertains to the short game, is it's more about doing it your way. 
and learning from your own experience. And that's where I think you've really created a nice series of books is reminding people you don't have to match some kind of model that you see. It's actually your way. Be, be prepared to paint your own pictures. You know, you go out there and, and play around with the idea that maybe maybe for you, if you're playing short shots and you, and you feel like you're putting a little bit of a fade spin on it, if, you, if, you, if you're playing some short shots and you try and draw it a little bit, mm-hmm. it, you, you know, they, just be, we think that the only the longer shots is where we can be creative. But, you know, as Gary has shown me many times, just by, just by experimenting with it and, you know, playing, playing from, from the same place but playing a few different clubs, you know, creates that opportunity to, to sort of, you know, that, that really felt good to me. I felt good playing it that way. And, I, and, and again, I think what it does, it, it opens up the opportunity, Tim, as you say, to find, to find your way, not so much be told the way. Now, yeah, as we talk about in the book, I think there's some understanding required about how you, you should potentially use your wedges and what your wedges are designed to do. I think that's a different thing. But how you go about then influencing that design I think is 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 far more of a personal journey, and and all of a sudden, then it becomes when creativity kicks in, it becomes a little bit more fun to play around with this rather than just pulling the same club out and just playing the stock shot every time, and then get, getting frustrated if you don't knock it to to three inches. Well, one of the one of the things I wanted to follow up with is that Howard and I, um, we have these discussions every once in a while on this podcast. We have. Um, when we, we, the odd time we get to play together, we don't get that many opportunities. Kind of there's this discussion of, of just that we're talking about your experience and, and is there ways to hit it the right way? And one of the things I think that you, a very valuable thing you guys talk about is the role of bounce on the wedge. And what you talk about is rather than using that, the, the, the leading edge, is more is, is what you call surf the turf. Mm. Can you just describe to us how you came to kind of maybe uh, understand that concept in your own game and why you think it's valuable for for people to get this sense of how to use the bounce? Yeah, isn't isn't that a great phrase? It's not mine, Tim, but surf the turf is a is a fantastic, evocative picture to to paint. You know, and as, as Gary... Well, surf the as, turf as, versus rip it and take a big, you know, yeah, leading yeah, edge yeah. chunk out of it where the, where the, the, where the, the divot the, goes further than the ball. Yeah, even the word chunk, it, it tells you everything you need <laughs> That's to That's right. Surf such a better word than chunk it into the side of a bunker. I think, I think first of all, for, for me, and we talk about this in, in the book, that the word bounce is probably the silliest word that's ever been attached to equipment ever in the history of the game. Because if you think about it, when people hear the word bounce or interpret the word bounce, they actually very easy to have a perception that the club would bounce. Mm-hmm. The club would bounce on, on hard turf. And then when you think, well, if the club bounces, surely I'm going to blade it through the, through the back of the green. But as, as, as Gary Nicholas explained to me many times, you know, that the, that the, the leading edge of the club with, with your wedges, the leading edge gets you into trouble. The back edge gets you out of trouble. So if you change, if you change the, the term bounce to, to back edge or leading edge, you then have a completely different approach to it. And, and the idea being that basically, if you can get the back edge of the club to interact smoothly with the ground, 
that the golf club is going to collect the ball. And your margin for error is huge. Mm-hmm. Because when, when many golfers, I think, who have the yips with the chipping, everybody, said that, everybody says that the yips is in the mind. And I, I firmly believe that most of the yips in chipping actually stems from a poor concept with technique, whereby you'll get a player who gets a very steep angle of attack and they, they, they sort of blade a few shots and chunk a few shots. And what they do is get the ball further and further back in the stance, the hands further and further forward. And now the only thing that you can do is use the leading edge of the club. And it's kind of like the margin for error is so small. But also now your brain's smart because it works out that you've actually taken so much loft off the club that what, what the yip is is an attempt to put some loft on it at the last to, minute. To pull, the, to pull the ball like to, to, to get it lofted. Yeah, yeah. You're, you, you know, it's the smart brain thinking, my God, there's no loft on this thing here coming into it. I better flinch it just to get it up in the air. Mm-hmm. And when you actually explain, when you actually explain to people that, 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 you know, using the back edge appropriately, you can actually hit anything up to, a, you know, a good few inches behind the ball. But as long as that back edge is interacting smoothly with the, with the ground, you've got, you, you can collect the ball so beautifully. So, you know, one of the things that, that we have, and it's, it's a metaphor that's been around for, for a long time, it's not our metaphor, but it really works well, is for anybody, and winter time's a great time to do this, is with your wedges, just imagine that the back edge of the club is like the wheels of an aeroplane. And basically what you've got is three potential landings, the club, with the club. So you could have a crash landing <laughs> where the leading edge digs into the turf. You can have an aborted landing where the, where the pilot pulls up the wheels. Or you can have a smooth landing where the back edge just smoothly interacts with the ground. Now, I would say, I mean, I, I read something that you put out recently, to might have even been today, about just ob- observation, observing yourself doing things. Well, one of the best short game exercises that you could ever do, and you can do it at home, you can do it on a mat, you can, you can do it in the garden, is just to take 10 balls and just hit a bunch of shots and just ask yourself, what landing, have I, what landing am I getting? Mm-hmm. Just, just don't, try, don't try and do anything. Just, just think to yourself, okay, right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit some shots here. Which of the three landings did I get? Did I get a crash landing? Did I dig the front edge in? Did I, lift, did I abort the landing and pull the wheels up too quickly? Or did I get a smooth landing? And time and time again, I've seen it. When you give that player that, that awareness exercise and you just say, I don't want you to do anything other than tell me what landing you got, they'll go crash landing, crash landing, aborted, aborted, and then all of a sudden, smooth landing, smooth landing, smooth landing, smooth landing. You know, if you could, you could get an absolute rank beginner, and if you said to them, I want you to put your mental attention on the back edge of this golf club, and I want you to see if you can just get that back edge to just brush the, brush the ground smoothly. Could you do it? And it's amazing. You can get literally early stage golfers, rank beginners, and they will start to do that really efficiently, really quickly, because we're pretty good at using tools as human beings. If the tool is explained to us, mm-hmm. you know, we, we, we don't have a, we don't have a problem with a nail and a hammer because it's pretty clear that, that it's supposed to do that. So, you know, most people can, can, can manage that. We're pretty clear on what a toothbrush can do. So we actually don't have too much issue, hopefully brushing our teeth, <laughs> but very few golfers have a really clear understanding of what the tool in the hand is actually designed to do. We, we, we must be the only sport that we're so detached from the implement in our hand that we're paying attention to almost anything other than that. 
you know, you, you guys in, in Canada, you know, you, with hockey, you know, people know what a hockey stick is designed to do. We, we, the, the, you know, even the beginner, I would imagine, makes a reasonable hockey motion. I, I don't know, but they understand what the tool is designed for. But in golf, we, we focused on, focus on almost anything other than the tool in our hand, and that causes so many problems. So when you devise the uh, series of books, the Lost Art of Golf series, and you got to the short game, and I, and I think I've asked you this with the other two, but can, can you tell us what, what is the lost art of the short game? And is it what you said at the beginning that people, you know, in, in the introduction, you, you reference uh, Ballesteros and uh, people like that that were, you know, s- short game artists. They learned it, you know, through trial and error. Ballesteros famously had that three iron on the sand and as a kid and learned all these shots. Is that the art that's lost that we just, you know, because when I, I just know when I was a kid, all my dad's friends and him, they all chipped with different clubs. We didn't have sand wedges, so they would all hit the low bump and run with a seven iron. They would hit a, uh, open up their pitching wedge and try and hit a higher shot. But really, when you had clubs that, that you had to use, is that the art that we've lost, that we don't use the tools in, in a variety of ways? I don't need to say anything, Howard. You just answered the question. Well, with thanks the question for being with there. us, I mean, Carl. <laughs> you know, that's exactly it. Is, is the, what, what, is, what is art is the, is the freedom to experiment, is the freedom to create. Yeah. You know, we, we, we quote at the beginning of the book, and I, and I think everybody, you know, all of your listeners should, should treat themselves to, to look at two shots on YouTube, punch in, Sebi Ballesteros, Royal Birkdale, nineteen seventy-six. Yeah, and treat yourself treat yourself to the sight of a uh, of a nineteen-year-old Spaniard announcing himself onto the world stage at Royal Birkdale on one of the driest summers that we've ever had in the UK. Um, I think it was probably the last dry summer that we did have. Actually, well, let me just jump in because seventies. I didn't realize I was in in the UK in twenty. Uh, 17 and the guy that was driving me referenced 1976 as the greatest summer that they've you've ever had on the island it was summer it was hot all the time it was so it was so dry the government in in at the end of the summer was so desperate they'd got people with dowsing sticks and things like that and they'd got <laughs> they'd got shamans and witch doctors and things like that trying to say prayers and encamp <laughs> to the heavens for, to, to, to. can you imagine that, that that we were praying for rain in the uk no of course it's, 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 but, but it's i'm sorry I, I interrupted you that that there's that video of biasteros in the summer of 76 is unbelievable yeah, so you, you see Seve as a as this nineteen year old at, at Birkdale. I mean, everybody when he was leading after after three rounds, people Seve talked about it years later, and he said, you know, for the first couple of couple of days when he was on the leaderboard, they actually everybody thought it was his brother Manuel. They didn't realize that it was it was him. It was it was it was Seve announcing himself, and you just see this. You know, the incredible swashbuckling. He's hitting it all over the place, but just finding magical ways of making making pars and birdies. But coming up the last hole, he'd, he'd been in the lead after three rounds, but Johnny Miller was a dominant force then in, in, in world golf, and he shot 66 in the final round. So Miller was well ahead coming up the last. But Ballesteros, after being literally all over the place, made a bit of a fight back. I think he, I think he birdied 16 and maybe eagled 17, something like that. But coming up the last... He knew he needed to make a birdie to tie Jack Nicholas for second place. 
There's a par five in those days, and he's pulled his second shot left. Now he's then faced with an impossible chip because it was so dry from the left hand, just in the left hand semi rough. The standard shot that should have been played was just a lob shot over the bunkers and knock it to 20 feet and then hopefully make, you know, maybe make, make the putt. But something you can see it in his eyes almost, you can see that something starts to happen in his, in, his, in his imagination. And he sees this incredible shot where he, he plays this pitch and run, I think, with an eight iron through a tiny channel between the two bunkers and he kind of feeds it through this channel and the ball rolls out to, to four feet. And uh, the, the famous commentator, Henry Longus, just said, that is not possible. He knocked the putt in and he, and he finished with the four and finished second with uh, tied second with Jack Nicholas. And even Johnny Miller, in his winning speech, actually mentioned that shot. It was, it was, it was, but that was the, to me, that was the epitome of, of an artist, you know, an artist allowing his imagination to, to create... You know, Seve, Seve apparently with, with his short shots, he said he would he would see more short shots, and there would be there would be a bunch of movies went off in his head, and then he would just pick one of those movies out, and he would play that movie, and then he would execute the shot relative to the movie that he that he'd seen in his head. So he, he reacted to the pictures in, right. in his head, and then there's the the, the the other one that's worth looking at that you know we've all seen many times is the is the, the, the famous shot that Tiger played. In 2005, at the at the Masters on 16, when he's he's hit it, he's hit it long and left, the place that you don't want to go. And um, was it Curtis Strange came out with the line? He said, "I can't imagine that he can get this ball inside Demarco." And Demarco was about 30 feet away. But just watch the video because it's it's an absolute education. Two things to watch when you're watching uh, when you're watching Tiger. First thing is to watch his eyes, because if you watch the quietness in his eyes. And he's appearing to sort of track, and you can see him kind of pitching, picturing in his in, 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 in his mind's eye that the landing spot. And then also, he seems to be verbalising. He seems to be verbalising to him. You can see his lips move. Mm-hmm. He's verbalising the shot. So it, it seems that you know he was he was in a kind of hypnotic state where he was so entranced. Um, he was so entranced by the puzzle that the golf course had set him at that point that his imagination just ran riot and he created a shot and then, you know, culminating with the famous Nike logo just appearing as the ball fell into the hole, you know, the greatest piece life. of free advertising. In your life. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Greatest piece of free advertising ever. Yeah, one of the things that's so interesting to me is that uh, I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking like, okay, those are golf gods. You know, they're, they're touched, you know, by the divine to come up with these types of shots. But I think that what is actually uh, uh, possible for people is when you have the presence of mind and what generally happens for most people is they think about what they should do, getting back to what we talked about earlier, perception, expectations. And what I think what happens with players like we just talked about and other very creative players, it's more like it comes to them. It's more of an allowing, like their mind works on it, but it's not like they're thinking about what's the thing to do here and, and forcing it and thinking and grinding through it, you know, which is, I hate that word, but it's more of an allowing in the picture. And in that picture, it came to Seve and he thought, that's the one I'm going to pick. So 
it's just my kind of way of, of trying to get across that in this game, it's more of some of a, a phrase that Howard uses all the time, allowing the game to come to you rather than trying to force it to happen. I don't know. Does that resonate with you? It, it completely resonates, Tim. And, uh, you know, we could, we could get into some, some deep territory, really, I suppose, with this kind of esoteric territory in a way that, you know, it's almost that when you, when you look at true excellence in, in sport, whether it's a Roger Federer, um, whether it's a Tiger Woods, a Michael Jordan, you know, a Lewis Hamilton uh, driving a motor car, Alan Prost and Senna, the, you know, Pele playing football. It's, it's almost as though that they have channeled something beyond themselves. They've, they've, the mind is receptive enough that if the, if there is, out there, uh, uh, you know, a deeper intelligence that you know, many people believe that there is. It's it's almost be it's almost something bigger than themselves, isn't it? It's almost that the 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 game gives them a, a shot to play through 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 an intelligence that you know we they they tap into as a result of the state of the mind that they're in. And I think you know, yeah, these are these are the gods of the game. But you know, for all for all of us is just to be out there and, and, and be quiet enough to, to allow the shots to emerge rather than, rather than thinking you have to do it this way or that way. And, you know, and, and I think that's where sometimes people get overcoached in a, in, a, in a sense that you should play this shot this way and you should do it that way. And, okay, there might be some parameters that you, that you want to work with and un, an un, understanding of the tools, as we, as we said before, but just allowing your own creativity to just start to kick in and the joy that you can get from seeing a shot and then, and then producing it. Well, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You don't, you, you make a mess of it, but you learn from that, from that process, but you learn from that freedom. Will we learn in the lost art of the short game as we uh, come to uh, the last couple of minutes here? I, I know when people hear about your books or hear about any golf instruction books, no matter how esoteric uh, or how, you know, we talk about gratitude and we talk about being in the moment and the power of now and all that stuff in the, in the game of golf that we resonate with. But ultimately, someone's going to buy this book because they're going to say, I want to have my short game be better. So you've because it's 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 true. No matter how much we talk about your mind can set you free. If you don't know how to play any shots around the green, it doesn't matter how free how free you feel in that moment. Um, what would you say to somebody if they said, can I improve my short game if I buy your book? 100% I would. And, and I hope I don't portray these things as being all about kind of, you know, nicey, nicey, free <laughs> hugging and we're all, we're all going to be in love with the golf course no matter what. You know, I, I, I get paid in my job on performance. But what I what I've found over the years is is that the route to performance is more about setting yourself free to perform as opposed to forcing performance. For so, sure, you know. In, in answer to the question, yeah, a hundred percent. I think if you can read the book and you gain a really clear understanding of how to use the the, the tool in your hand, and you have some drills. We've got loads of drills in the books that you can that you can go out and try out with and you do some of the awareness exercises, you will become a better short game player. If you become a better short game player, you're going to make more pars when you miss greens. So if you make more pars when you miss greens, your handicap's going to come down. You'll win some tournaments. So it, 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 is, a, it is a performance-based book, 
but the route to that performance is is perhaps a little bit different than the kind of prescriptive you need to do it this way because this is my method and my method's better than anybody else's there's a bit of free there's there's degrees of freedom for you to personalize around some key concepts it's such a balance i remember in one of your dvds i don't know how many years ago if you go all the way into mechanics that's not going <laughs> to – you're going to run into trouble. Yeah. You go all the way to complete freedom. So it's really – it's a balance, and I think that's what your book does very nicely. No, that's a great point, you know, Tim, and I think – hang on, Carl. I'm, I'm, that's a great point that Tim made. There's, there's a balance. But what you said, Carl, too, is that you know, without some technical ideas, that freedom – you can be as you know, in the moment as you want, but if you don't know how to hit that shot, it doesn't matter. You know, you'll be a happy hacker. You know, <laughs> you, if, if, if you've got no idea what you're trying to do with the golf club to produce shots, yeah, you'll, 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 you'll be happy out there. But, you, you know, cut out the middleman and just walk the dog around the golf course. <laughs> that's, the, that's, you know, that's the route you want to go down. This is, this is about becoming better golfers, but, but a, a different route to becoming a better golfer, <laughs> one that... Perhaps not the miser- miserable route that many of us have taken, where we've just got lost in in swing and technique prison. So we we get to a point that we that we hate the game and we don't go out and play unless we we think that the swing is perfect. No, exactly. I, I, you so know, you, you, you brought up something that I thought I see it around Europe all the time. When you're, I've been there a bunch of times in the last few years, but people bring their dogs everywhere. I think that golf courses, if they wanted to have happier golfers, should rent like therapy labs. On the first hole, you're allowed to take a dog with you because it's hard to be mad at, at your golf game when you've got a big furry friend there they could just have they'd be like therapy caddies uh carl i want to wish you the best and uh and again i hope your health continues to uh, improve um how are things where you live where do you live again I live in uh, in Manchester, which is the kind of middle part of England in the no- in the northwest of England. And how are so, how's we, the uh, variant uh, working out there? Um, in 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 golfing terms, the the variant is twenty five under par for four rounds. It's just it's just going crazy at yeah. the moment. It's I mean the the figures are just frightening. The multiplying the record up until. I think it was Wednesday of this week was, I think, 40,000 40, cases in a day. And I think yesterday we had 90,000 and the, the, the forecast, and it's going to double every day. I mean, the, 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 the numbers are a, a staggering, really, of what, what it could be. Well, and Carl, the whole, the whole pit- yeah, and Carl, in golf terms, how is Boris Johnson doing <laughs> in dealing with this? That's very good. In, in in golfing terms, Boris Johnson didn't even appear on the first tee. That's he, right. In uh, golfing he terms, his, he needs he, to... He, he missed his tee off time. That's right. He needs to get the book, The Lost Art of uh, Handling a Pandemic. Carl, thank you very much, my friend. The Lost Art of the Short Game is the latest in the series. If you need more information, you can literally Google The Lost Art of Golf. Uh, the uh, short game book is part of a series that uh, Carl has uh, produced with a, a very fine professional, Gary Nickel. And always a pleasure having you talk about it on our show, sir. Yeah, good to see always you, Carl. Be, all the best. Always good to be. Yeah, all the best, chaps. Thanks for having me again. Okay, well, well, we will, and it won't be the last time, obviously. It's like every couple of months. Oh, yeah, Carl. Let's get him back. FOS. Thanks, pal. Take care and stay well. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I will. Thank you. Thank you. The um, just uh, it's funny. The not funny, but it's interesting that 
as of uh, this weekend, uh, they're making rapid tests uh, available everywhere in the province, including the LCBO. And when I heard that, I thought, is that the most Doug Ford thing ever? <laughs> like, how Doug Ford is that? Well, that's right. We can make the test available at the Lick Bow or, uh, I don't know, a Rub and Tug. <laughs> Are they also encouraging you to get a Laker when you're there? Get, get your test. Make sure you get your... Exactly. You'll go... All these hipsters are going there. Do you have the test at an IPA? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, all right. Well, that's great. Always great talking to Carl. I mean, yeah, a lot of things that he says are, uh, you know, very true that most people just think there's one way to play a shot around the green, but, you know, gets back to what we've been talking about in terms of, you know, expectations and, you know, he yeah, meant- to your point. You can be a Zen monk out there, but if you don't know, yeah, I like the way Carl put it, if you don't know how to use the tool. Yep. You're, you know, happy hacker. I love that. You know, I really noticed that uh, Carl's use of metaphors has really gone through the roof since his heart bobble. It opened up. <laughs> That's right. It really opened him up. I mean, I mean, you can be Literally. a happy. You can be a yeah. You can be a happy hacker if you have the right. I you know, one of the things that uh, my friend Paul Henrik has shown me is that you know sometimes you don't have to hit the shot. If you're uncomfortable with, you know, trying to loft a ball over a bunker to a pin that's in the back left of the green, because that's a difficult shot for everybody, you could hit it to the right over there 30 feet away. I mean, when there's, but that's a really hard decision for most men to make. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I loved how it was very interesting, eh? How, in essence, Carl was connecting with the stuff that we've been talking about through uh, through decades. Well, it's all expectations, is, yeah. Is is not to two chip, and you know you you don't need to try to knock it to within tap in if it's you have to hit this Herculean shot. Well, I didn't want to interrupt him at that point, but you know I, I've got so many statistics around the green from the rough from ten. I was going to say from eleven yards or ten yards on the PGA Tour from from the fairway from like the like not the rough. They're still their average is still outside of four or five feet. It's six or eight feet. And so if you're a 12 handicap and you got a chip shot, you don't have to, you know, stress out. As he said, just get it on the green is a reason, as he you know told the example of that guy, getting it on the green for a lot of people listening is is enough. That's job well done. My point is you don't have to hit the shot just because your friends are there and you think you want to get this. You know, one that phrase being out of position. I know. I think a lot of golfers listening. If you if if you can recognize that you're out of position, and play from that point, I think you'll be more you'll be more successful. You'd be happier too. I think. I don't. Yeah, it's kind of like what my dad would say. You know, take your lumps. You know, take your lumps. Well, and and it's the hardest thing to do. You know, all those cliches our dad said about you know play. You know, but. but you know, play each one shot at a time and uh, all that. Keep the course in front of you. All that stuff is easy to understand. And that's what Fawcett says. That's what I say. It's easy. The simplest thing to understand is what we're talking about. It is hard, the hardest thing to do. Yeah, the discipline part. Uh, that is the hardest part. And, and you, I'm sure, can talk to, if, if I'm playing in a foursome and all three players are on the green... And they've got putts for pars or they've got, you know, they can two putt or whatever. And I'm off the green. 
I want to be where those guys are, but yeah. that may not be the best shot at this point. You know, and I and I and I think that's the hardest thing to do is when you're in a group of men and you you we're constantly comparing ourselves as human beings, but we're also in a game of golf, like they're over there. I want to be over there, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I don't think that's just the, the, uh, the province, if you will, of, of males. I think that with a lot of, I agree you know, with very competitive women, it's the same thing, but it's, it's, it, it's kind of like, okay, here's you know, Timmy's challenge with this shot. He's got to get up and down over the bunker to a, a pin cut close. And it's like, no, I'm not doing that. <laughs> it, well, no, and I'm not saying that women aren't competitive. I'm just saying I see. I think. I think. Uh, not knowing uh, inside a female's mind, other than having daughters, which has helped me not at all, except to know how dumb I am most of the time. Um, I'm just talking about that sensation of if I'm in front of the green in two, and the pin is back left, and my mates are on the green. Something about that situation. We've all been in it. Even if they weren't on the green, it's the desire to to make up for the mistake you've made right now, yeah. as opposed to going, okay, I'm out of position. I'm on a bare lie. I don't have this shot. Even if I know, even a good player, I may not take that shot because the one time I did when Paul was with me, it led to disaster in a tournament when he just said to me after the round, you know, you could have just hit it over there and I never considered it. Not once in that situation when it was happening did I ever consider playing away from the pin and making a bogey. And instead, chaos happened. I made a triple bogey because I thinned it into the bunker. Then I, I, I sculled it into a hazard over the green. I chipped up. I made a 25-footer for triple. But the point of it is afterwards I went, oh, yeah, I guess I could have just hit it over there. Yeah, well, again, that comes back to what Carl was talking about and we were getting into is, is in essence, having the presence of mind to see the options as opposed to, well, this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, I'm supposed to try to get it close. Yeah, it's a difficult, difficult shot, but I'm going to try it anyways. And having sort of more of the options come to you and... But what you just said, too, is so true. Like, I know it's a difficult shot or I'm going to try it anyways. Like, I, I, I was telling... Henrik and I were talking recently and I remembered a guy asking me toward the end of the season about, you know, all he did all day, every time he got a a shot around the greens, he wanted to hit a lob shot, a lob shot or a flop shot. And he said to me something like, you know, how many, how many times a year do you play that shot? I go, none, none times a year. Like literally. And I said to Paul, I said, I I, I went back in my mind. I played a flop shot none times in a round of golf. Screwed around with it around the greens. I can play a shot. Yeah, I hit a a couple of soft lob shots, but not a flop shot. And imagine someone with a 13 handicap every time they had a chip. This is what they did. Well, that's what Carl talks about in in, in the beginning of of his of his book is is that even the professionals. You look on the tour, they all seem to be getting out there 54, 56, 60, yeah. and trying to hit this whoop shot, and it, because that's the thing we're supposed to do, apparently. Well, and and I would say to you, you're right, but next time you're watching golf, just count how many times in a Sunday afternoon when you're watching short game shots, how little, how few times they actually hit the big, wide-stanced, super flopper. Almost never, because even those guys know that if it goes wrong, it's leading to a bigger score than they may want at that point. Um, All right. So as I I, uh, 
I can't remember if we were talking about this on the show or off the show, but uh, anyway, I, I, this guy followed me around, and 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 when the tournament, when I played the senior am. It was just a very nice uh, fellow named Baron. Baron Thompson's there. Baron's a, a an avid player. Hi, Baron. How are you? Terrific. I'm trying to describe how you and I met. And uh, before I do, though, were you had you ever heard our podcast before? Uh, a few years ago, yeah. Um, but since then, you know. I was moving and did other things. So. That's, that's fun. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Did moving get in the way of you listening to this gold every week? How dare you? Absolutely. What's going yes. on there, Baron? <laughs> I don't know. It, everything's falling apart. <laughs> I would just take it off the wall if I were you at this point. I don't think it's going to stay up there. He's got a map. He's put up a map. a map. He's tried to decorate his Zoom experience. That happens to us. That happened to Howard with your with your old sign before you got it fixed. Baron, just take it down. You're going to want to take it down because when you look at this later, you're going to think, "Shit, I should have taken that down." Okay, let me take it down. There you go. So I uh, was playing at Loyalist outside of Kingston. I get to the ninth hole on the last round, and the ninth hole is where there's a all every day. There's a few people there. Uh, because they're recording your scores after nine uh, and every three holes, in fact. And I see, so I'm, I'm used to seeing a crowd of people on the ninth green every day. And I, and I saw a group of people there and it's a very difficult hole. So I really saw, I didn't really pay attention. I got into my routine and I hit probably the uh, easily the best shot I hit that day. <clears throat> Excuse me. Maybe the best shot I hit in the tournament. And then I get up there and I see this fellow Baron and a few other people were there. And I, I two putted for par, which is the only time I made a par in that hole in, in practice round and three rounds. And then Baron said to me, uh, I don't know, you sort of introduced yourself to me. I thought it was because you listened to this show, but how did you know I was there? Um, from uh, CFNY days, oh, I, I knew that you were a golfer. And uh, sure enough, uh, <clears throat> this half an hour away from good players hit golf balls and I recognized your name in the lineup so I wanted to uh, have a purpose of, of going there okay. to see you and, and Dan was a Hamilton uh, guy so uh, Dan was the other guy in the group yep Dan Gagliardi and right, Scott right. and uh, was Dan the guy whose golf ball I hit on the last hole was that him yeah Okay. That's it. So, Baron, we I, want to revisit this trauma. Yeah, just let it no, it's fine. No, no, I don't. I, I don't mind. Uh, so, Baron, I, we kind of lost you there, but you you walked up to me at the, after I put it out. You said, uh, "Do you mind if I walk around with you?" And I said, "No, not at all." And I, thinking you walk around for a hole or two and get bored of the process, but you hung in for the the nine holes. And I talked to you after because I was I was kind of curious, Baron, because you're a guy that knows the game a bit and you you like golf. I was just kind of curious what your perception of me as a player was, because I thought that's somebody watched me play nine holes of tournament golf. And I was curious how that showed up for you. What my, what your takeaway from, you know, watching me go through uh, nine holes of, you know, pretty intense tournament golf for me. Howard, I had high expectations. <laughs> you shouldn't have. Um, you, you know, uh, 
I was my takeaway from the whole thing with you was I thought you'd be a little more game faced, uh, even though you're a performer and a stand up comedian and and that kind of thing. I just thought you'd kind of had this straight ahead game face on and not engage the crowd at all. The crowd of me. Um, but yeah, you were uh, quite the gentleman and you introduced me to the other players on the uh, 10th tee. And, you know, usually everyone's awkward about that sort of thing. And those kind of niceties go by the wayside, but you know, you stepped up and you did that sort of thing. And you made a joke about me stalking you and, <laughs> and hopefully I wasn't a star. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, um, it was a nice combination of um, you being competitive, but also uh, cordial and outgoing and uh, realizing here's a day I'm playing with two guys and there's, you know, uh, two guys watching. Um, you treated the whole thing the way it should have been treated. Interesting. That's you cool. know, somewhat so- serious when it needed to be, because just before you hit the shot, like you would just everything else would zone out you'd you wouldn't zone out you'd zone into the shot and tune everything else out and uh but as soon as you hit the shot i mean you're right back to howard again Hmm. that's cool because one of the things we've talked about through this show is that ability to to kind of step into a shot and to step out because if you're if you're fully like focused all the time yeah you're going to exhaust yourself for sure you know, whereas so that's really cool. So in terms of what you witnessed as a, you know, Howard is a he's a tournament player. He's he's really experienced. He's a damn good player. What did you notice in terms of just how he would kind of step into his process? What were the things that were notable about what you would just witness in terms of him going through his process? Um, so in between shots, um you know, Howard was the comedian. Howard was the outgoing, uh, cordial, friendly uh, guy. But as you know, as the shot got closer, the talking got a little less, and um, then it was it was game on for for a minute or two before the strike, and then afterwards he was right back. Gotcha. So you, you could. You know, it's funny. You know, I'm glad to hear you say that because my sometimes my I wonder if I'm, you know, too locked in at times Um, and having you there. Like if you hadn't been there, I sort of still would have been the same. But I just remember one time, I think it was the 16th or 17th hole, 16th, maybe. And I hit it close and you were up at the green. I said, did you see that, Baron? Are you seeing this? Because, you know, because I was serious golf for me, but having you and and I think there was another guy, as you said, that followed us for a few holes. But having you there and and I've worked really hard at not grinding in between the shots. Now, you happen to watch me on a day where, you know, I think I was one under on the back nine until, you know, the incident. Um <laughs> So I was playing pretty good golf. I was under par. I was, I think, my total for the day, I think I was one over for the day on the 18th or two over, whatever it was. was, My point is I was playing pretty well. I wasn't playing perfectly, but I was playing pretty well. So maybe I was a little bit looser because of that. But I, I was just curious about your perception of how serious I took it and how 
not serious in between shots. Even at that level, even the Ontario Senior M, in between, I was still trying to like enjoy the day and. Every, I, every time I passed Baron Tim, I, I felt bad because I couldn't put him in my cart and give him a ride to the next hole because you just can't do that. And I'd say yeah. to him, Baron, I can't give you a ride. I'm sorry. Run, Baron. I yelled at him. <laughs> run, Forrest, run. Run, Baron. <laughs> it's, uh, it was pretty easy yes. to watch these guys. And, um, yeah, I, I guess I went in with no expectations, but I kind of thought Howard would be the game face Tiger Woods, not engage anyone, um, be super serious. But, you know, and he wasn't the, the jokester either all the time. But it was a really nice, mature mix. And, you know, I guess that tournament's a serious tournament. Yes. But, I mean, in the big scheme of things. No, exactly. You know, I, I'm... If you didn't make the cut or you finished first... <laughs> It you only know. it only matters because you say it does. But Baron, um, and, and and before I let you go, in terms of how uh, the three of us, because all of those guys were good players too, the, the the quality of the shots. I mean, it's not like we're you know. I think I was trying to make the point to you um, when we spoke after. Like being a scratch golfer doesn't mean you hit every shot perfectly. You just hit a lot of like sort of okay shots. I didn't hit every shot good on that back nine. I hit a few that were a bit off, and a few I just didn't get into any trouble. Um, Dan uh, was on his way to make a triple or quad, I think on the 17th hole. And uh, he made a great double. Yeah. And that was a big yes, difference did. between guys like me, um, you know, average chops and, you know, someone that knows how to play the game. That's an interesting phrase. He made a great double. And, and sometimes yeah, sometimes you have to. Well, I, I, that's really what I wanted to see. And I appreciate that, Baron, because, again, I, I've never had anyone watch me for, you know, two and a half hours like that. And, yeah, but we can't, we can't let this go without diving in at least a little bit into the incident. Uh, <sighs> What in terms of Howard's uh, demeanor? Yeah, that that and, that few seconds wasn't so great. <laughs> and being cordial, uh, how did our man look then? Okay, that's a great. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's take the scab off. No, no, that's fine. Go ahead. Ooh, well, I'm a journalist by training. I no, that's good. I, we can't questions. leave it with for and, and yeah. swing thought nerds. STDs know that I hit the wrong ball on the last hole and it got a two stroke penalty. But you watched it all happen. You watched me hit that second shot, which was awesome. It's par five. I'm 40 feet in from the flag into just off the green. I'm on my way to making a birdie, shooting uh, even par 73, I think. So what did you see? Well, there was a lot of chatter when you were over the ball by the green. And I think you called somebody over. I called an official over, yeah. we're all wondering what's going on. Yeah. You know, are you trying to get relief, you know, and, and get to a position of five or six feet from the pin based on some sprinkler or something. And I'm thinking, what are you up to? <laughs> and sure enough, sure enough, uh, it was the, it was the ball in question. So, um, you were very quiet, but, um, you were seething inside. Oh yeah. You were peeved. You'd see little uh, smoke trails coming. Yeah. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Not everyone could see the smoke, but, it was smoky and uh, <laughs> got the cart, drove back to the, uh, to the, uh, 
area where your drive landed and, uh, you know, just executed another good shot. Um, you know, you didn't stick it two feet by the pin, but that's a tough shot anyway. And um, you finished out, and I thought, as a spectator, it was time to go. Because no one likes, it's kind of like the athlete that loses the match and he gets interviewed. And Well, how'd you feel? <laughs> <laughs> How do you think I feel? Um, so, yeah, I thought it was time to go. Well, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye to Baron. Because uh, I kind of went to my car and I slammed my clubs in the trunk. But I didn't leave. I, I was going to leave in a fit of, you know, whatever. But I kind of said, you know, what? I, this is ridiculous. And I went and had a fake beer with the guys. And then I sent Baron a note later saying, listen, man, I'm sorry I didn't see you at the end. Thanks for, uh, you know, watching me. That was great. And, uh, yeah, Howard, I mean, yeah. Did you get your sweater back? I didn't. The jacket sweater that you left in the cart, yeah? Yeah, the uh, Fairway and Green sweater Fairway I left in. Yeah, I know. Uh. It's ridiculous. Huh. That's all right. I value apparel. <laughs> At the moment, it didn't seem important. Um, <laughs> but you know what? I'll, I'll, I will tell you that it was a great lesson. I was talking about it the other day with somebody, and I was saying, well, yeah, actually, it was Paul Gortner and I were talking about it. And I said, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Played the wrong ball. He goes, yeah, you'll probably never do that again. I said, yeah, you should see how I marked my ball now. Spirographs and, you know, initials. <laughs> and anyway, uh, listen, Baron Thompson. Little, little caricature. <laughs> that's right. A little picture of you and I. Um, Baron, thank you for uh, popping in here. I hope you're going to have a great Christmas and a, and a wonderful, safe, healthy holiday. And uh, if we're ever back in uh, in Kingston, I'm going to hit you up for a round there. We'll go play together and uh, and we'll hang out. And now that you you've you've discovered this podcast again, and you can listen to it, we'd love for you to be a, a subscriber and uh, tell your friends. Even if you move again, Tim. Yeah, <laughs> good meeting you, Tim. And yeah, nice uh, meeting you, Baron. That was fun. All right. Take care, Howard. Thank you, my friend. All the best. Take care. Okay. See you. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, uh, my perception of, uh, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I don't take it as seriously as I think I do. I mean, I, I take it very seriously around the ball and, and sort of more of a, like, you know, I'm, I'm able to function and have a conversation. I mean, I don't know how he would have observed me if I was, you know, four over or something. I don't know. But uh, he, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, it's a bit of a false positive because he caught me on a day. I think I was playing pretty well all the way through. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to talk. Howard, whenever I play with you, whether you've been playing really good or really bad, you talk. <laughs> oh, it's true. That's true. That's part of who you are. Yeah. And, and you know, it's it, but you also know that as a good player that you have time to focus and you have time to let it go. Yeah. Uh, kind of coming back to Carl, one of the key things I learned from listening to him years ago was he talks about how you, you have a limited amount of energy for a round of golf, like mental energy. Yeah. And it's like an egg timer. And you have to preserve the the time. So in you come into your shot like Baron talked about, you settle in, you get focused, do what you need to do, execute, and then you come out of it. And then you come back into the discussion about the Blue Jays, yeah. you know, bullpen or the rotation or the Leafs or something, and then you come back into the shot and and that way you preserve that amount of time you need to pre- preserve for to keep your energy because if you're if you're grinding on every shot and all the time which a lot of people do yeah you run of energy 
uh, pretty quickly. You know, you mentioned earlier in the show uh, you don't like the word grinding, but but I think what you mean because there's grinding in that you're you're not giving up grinding. Yes, I agree with that, and, and, I'm, and I'm that type of grinding. That. That, yeah, that type of grinding is is different than hitting a shot. And then this is what I used to be like. I would hit a shot and then unless it was perfect, whatever I thought perfect was, I would grind all the way to the next shot, wondering why that shot didn't pull. And then thinking about the par I didn't make. I mean, I was grinding my wheels all the time. Exactly. Where now, you know, if a round isn't going, you know, great or whatever, I still will. I will grind out the best score I can and give that grinding really means can you give every shot the kind of attention you give a birdie putt meaning you know you really stalk it and you really but because sometimes when we're pissed off at ourselves we don't give those no we don't don't. give the up and down for double bogey the same way we would give the up and down for like being near a par five and two trying to get up and down for birdie Right. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting. (laughs) Yet another discussion about Tim's aversion to the word grinding. Members of my University of Guelph golf team, they'll say, Tim, I know you don't like the word grinding. Uh, (laughs) What I mean (laughs) is it's this popular perception that we get, I think, from like Azinger on TV is, is, you know, he's trying so hard and all this. And, And that's the part that I take issue with is that whenever we're trying really hard, that's when it generally doesn't work. It's more of, of, of being you know, in the moment, allowing it to happen, stepping in, stepping out. Um, it, you know, I just think it's kind of like that American version, particularly of, of someone trying so hard that they have like you know, beads of blood coming out of their yeah. forehead. Yeah, I, I'm, and, and I agree with you, but... But I guess what I, I think the, the distinction is it, whatever that is, what, whatever is the opposite of giving up, that's what yeah. I think a lot of golfers, you know, and, and myself was, you know, again, one of the worst I ever met was you give up because something in your brain says, if I don't try anymore and I shoot that high number, then at least I'll be able to go, well, at least, you know, I really didn't try. I wasn't trying. It wasn't really trying, even though no one gives a shit, and, and it makes you feel bad. And, and again, I keep bringing up Henrik, because Henrik, <clears throat> we're going on six years of being, you know, friends and, and golf buddies, but also, you know, I, I sort of started to hang mm-hmm. out with him because he was 10 well, years. Also a mentor. I was going to say mentor to you. 10 years sober when i met him and now you know we're both further down the road but one of the things he talked about was you know if you make the best score you can make on a day whatever that score is you will feel better you know he talked that's when i brought up he says you know sometimes you got to put your big boy pants on and just make a double bogey and shut up and be accept it because i could never get my head around that and you know i talked to my older brother yesterday and he, who is one of the smartest guys I know, was playing with his girlfriend, who's a very good golfer, and he started off double bogey, double bogey, and he said this to me. He said, part of the reason I was in a funk is because she made a birdie on the first hole. <laughs> I'm like, like, that's, and I'm sorry, David, if I'm speaking out of, out of school, but, but that's, those are the kind of things that golfers go through, including giving up. 
So if grinding is the wrong word, what I would say is, or trying, trying hard all the time, but if you continue to try, period, you will always do your, do your best. As long as you can leave the golf course knowing that you did your best on every shot, your absolute best, which I've never done. You know, I keep that uh, Dr. Larden's uh, scorecard. I've never got above. Uh, I think my peak was 95%, but averaged around 90. Tour players, <clears throat> excuse me, average between 95 and 97%, meaning that they are giving their best. It's a practice on every shot that they can. And I think we'd all learn a little bit, learn something from that. Love that. And I love the, the word you use, practice. Yeah. See, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, again, coming back to Carl, so much of what we do in our, in our culture, golf culture, all this is that I'll be happy when, yeah. when I get this, you know, when I finally break 190, 80, my handicap goes to this, I win the tournament, I'll be happy. And it's just a promise that just never delivers. Well, and I think a lot of us are unhappy with our golf selves because we suspect that we're a bit of a, you know, that we, that we give up maybe more than we'd like other people to know. I, I know I certainly was ashamed of it. It used to make me feel bad about myself. And, um, and I've talked to you about this before. I know some guys that are really, really good golfers, plus handicapped golfers that don't like to play tournaments. Yeah. I would call them fake plus handicap golf but whatever they whatever it is they don't like to post a score on the off chance that that score won't be in their you know comfort handicap zone but you know i was talking talking to gortner about shooting 87 at i think it was 87 or 88 at uh st thomas in the second round this year and i tried my guts out i said i laughed i said i forgot i finished par par on two of the hardest courts golf two of the hardest holes in the course i finished par par to shoot 88 but i can tell you when i first met you i would have shot 98 easily yeah, yeah. I, I i might have not even because i would have given up way before that way before yeah. that i would have just stopped trying but i uh but there's something there's a satisfaction yeah, and that's one of the things that um, when people start to play, you know, university golf on a team, is that you give your best all the time. You do not give up, and you not come. Well, I got angry and I got away. Mm-hmm. No, that doesn't pass. You're on a team, and so it's not a bad approach to take. Any, you know, as most people are don't play team golf, but it's just like what you talked about. If you if you just do your best and you stay with it, um, because. You know, even if you do shoot, you know, a great, you know, a great score, I think there's as much satisfaction from knowing I faced some adversity and I didn't give up on myself or I didn't allow myself to go into that, you know, resignation and loss of focus. No, I stayed with it. And I think you can get equal amounts of satisfaction, if not more, when then, you I, I agree. show up as your best self. That phrase you stayed with it. When I'm playing with somebody, and I maybe even said it to you, but I, I know I've said it dozens of times in a summer. When I play with somebody that f- is in a bit of trouble on the hole and gets up and down for bogey or, you know, uh, grinds it out to get whatever score they can, I'll say that. I actually say, way to stay with it. Way to stay yeah. with it means that you were engaged on every shot, even after you got into trouble. Because I can promise you, on my lowest rounds of last summer, 
in my very lowest rounds, I still had moments where there was a problem to be solved. And, and it, the, um, I guess the point I'm trying to make is, you know, shooting 68 is cool, but it still has moments where you're not sure what to do or you're not sure how it's going to turn out. Um, maybe less so than when you shoot 78, but yeah. still they're there. Yeah, I'm going to be brief because I know I, I got to get go. going. Yeah. I got to go. But I remember being so impressed in a game with uh, a fellow that you met at Glencairn near the end of the season, Tom Nowak. So, so Tom's about a two handicap. Tom's a very. I so, played with Tom at the last. Uh, played one of my last rounds with Tom. Very good player. Very very good player. Yeah, absolutely. And what I, I remember one time playing with him, and he got in trouble on a hole. And but he was as we were talking. He was giving his best on every hole, and he got he got up there on the green, and I was like, I was trying to count what it was, and he made about a four footer for ten. Yeah. And it wasn't like he didn't, you know, get to a point and he just raked it up and, did, you know, ESC in his pocket, give up. No, he did his best on every hole. And I've watched Tom do not quite to 10 a lot, but I've watched him do that. And he just stays with it. And I just think that that is so, um, I don't know, that's a wonderful character trait. To it really is. It. And you know what? Also, easily, easy to understand. Difficult to do, but also easy to easy to train yourself to do. Just what you said, like if you're playing with your buddies, you know, just and you know you're on your way to making a big score, you have to ask yourself, what is the lo-, you know? I, I, again, what I said to Fawcett a few weeks ago, what is the lowest score I can make from this point? And guys like Tom Nowak, and you know, I think I've gotten really good at that. Where I'm. Okay, I know I'm on my way to making a bigger number than par, but what what's the best I can do? Not oh fuck it, I'll just you know break it in and I oh give me a I can't make more than a double. You know I I never have to put more than a double on a, on my scorecard. In fact, I think at my handicap, I'm not I'm not even sure at you're allowed to make bogeys. But I mean, yeah, well, I'm but, laughing because my dad used to he would call it a, a put me down fur. Oh yeah, that's right, <laughs> put me down fur. <laughs> All right, Tim O'Connor, O'ConnorGolf.ca, everybody. And, of course, the uh, Humble and Fred program continues to uh, uh, just, you know, go along for another year at HumbleAndFred.com. Uh, uh, I'll be talking to you before Christmas, but not on this show. Merry Christmas to you and your family. I hope all that stuff goes well for you. I hope they find a place at the, the end for the baby Jesus and, uh, and all the other uh, fantastic stories. Uh, you too, man. Right back at you. And, all right, uh, Timmy. All the best to you and everyone in uh, 2022. Yes, Happy New Year. Yes, the, the next Swing Thoughts will be the first week of Janvier. So, uh, happiest of New Year. Thanks to TaylorMade Golf. we got so many TaylorMade stories for you. And Jonathan uh, Wong Apparel. Good night, everybody. When he gets up under the lights, play his-